You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Hey everyone, Mike Brazier with the Ducks Unlimited podcast here. As we get into season five here in the next few weeks, we will be releasing a series of episodes covering the historic drought in the Western U.S. One of the most important landscapes in those discussions is going to be the Klamath Basin. To help orient you to the region, we are going to be re-releasing three episodes from season three in which we discussed some of the history of the Klamath Basin and how it is shaping some of the events unfolding these days. We encourage you to listen to these episodes as they lay the foundation for a deeper understanding and appreciation for the intricacies of the conversations that will follow. This is episode two of three. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we're going to be continuing our discussion about the Klamath Basin, its historical importance to waterfowl, some of the developments and changes that have occurred in that in that basin over the years, and where we are today. It's a very important story with respect to contemporary waterfowl management, and it is the focus of some of Ducks Unlimited's highest priority conservation actions and understanding the history of that of, of that basin and what has happened and is happening to waterfowl habitats is certainly important for understanding why it is so important to Ducks Unlimited. To help us again with this conversation, I'm welcoming in, I'm happy to welcome in Dr. Dave Mauser, retired U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Supervisory Wildlife Biologist from the Klamath Basin National Wildlife Refuge Complex, and Dr. Mark Petrie, Ducks Unlimited's Director of Conservation Planning for the Western Region. Dave and Mark, welcome back to the podcast. 
Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. The first thing that I need to do on this episode is to tell our listeners that if you have not listened to the episode prior to this one, stop listening to this one and go back and listen to that other one because you're certainly going to need the background in order to understand what's going on here. It is one of the more complex stories of uh, waterfowl habitat uh, changes and complexities that uh, that I've, I've encountered and, and glad to have some help discussing this. So, Dave, where we left off, we were kind of tracing activities in this region uh, through from the turn of the century up through uh, the turn of the 19th century up to the mid 20th century. So I know there are some, I know the, uh, you've, we've kind of talked offline about how the 1950s was a good year for, for some of these, for multiple refuges there. But before, before I get you to kind of tell that story about how the era when both refuges were functioning well, I wanted to touch on botulism. I mentioned in episode one that we're eventually going to talk about talk about that as an avian disease that has reared its head here actually this year uh, and has some has some implications for for the work that needs to be done out there. But it this this year's occurrence of avian botulism was not the first uh, the first time we saw that out there uh, anyone that knows about botulism will will certainly be able to piece together that when we start lowering water levels in areas that have high densities of waterfowl that's not a good recipe if you're wanting to minimize the probabilities of of a botulism outbreak so dave what what do the records tell us about uh, botulism out in the Klamath Basin during the years when maybe the some of those lakes started to dry up? When I really started to see uh, um, botulism as an issue in the basin was in some of the writings in the 30s. And, and it, it was principally on Thule Lake because at that time, Lower Klamath was dry, um, had been drained. Uh, and it had to deal with uh, return flows coming from the irrigation project into um, the refuge and um, water levels were up, water levels were down, and heat of the summer, very attractive place for birds. And uh, the, the refuge spent considerable time picking up dead birds and rehabbing uh, birds in, in uh, duck hospitals. Okay, so that would have been in the 1930s, and I would imagine just in in the intervening years when you had low water and high duck concentrations, you were at risk of those uh, at that again. And so that became an important reason for wanting to kind of make sure we had reliable water supply in some of those refuges, right? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, Reliable supply and a timely supply so that it it came to you in the quantities you wanted it uh, so you could manage your water. On the previous episode, we talked about the tunnel that brought some of that return flow water from Thule Lake over to Lower Klamath Lake to kind of restore some of the wetland uh, habitats there. Uh, what happened after that point? Is that when we started to see both refuges functioning really well? Yeah. W- what happened was uh, prior to the tunnel being in, Thule Lake had expanded uh, to very large size due to the return flows and water levels, as I mentioned, were, were up, were down, were up, were down. Well, those are perfect germination conditions for for emergent marshes too and so there was uh, a tremendous areas of emergent marshes nine ten thousand acres on Thule lake or more of emergent marsh and very very attractive for waterfowl um, but the tunnel through the hills start draining that off over the lower klamath now on the lower klamath side uh, they were in the process the fish and wildlife service of, of, of being ready to receive that water into a series of management 
plants where they could control water levels to some degree. So on the lower Klamath side, you had early successional marshes that were very, just developing. They were very productive, very attractive waterfowl. And you still had that going on to a very large degree over on Tulu Lake. And so that's why I say both refuges in the 50s, uh, late 40s, 50s, were both firing at the same time, so to speak. And uh, duck populations were high then, and uh, particularly pintails. And some of the census numbers were, were really mind-boggling. Now that would have been the era of uh, like six or seven million birds uh, in the Klamath Basin? Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, especially the pintails. I seem to recall one count at Tule Lake. I think it was in the late 1950s, maybe 1957, where they counted over three million pintail on Tule Lake alone, which is about as many pintails that are alive in North America today, I think. Yeah, it's pretty hard to believe. You know, I should mention, too, that at the same time these wetlands were, there was also a, lo a lot of, uh, the first thing they would plant generally after they reclaimed uh, wetlands was small grains. And, you know, farming technology isn't what it was, and it was a little more primitive back then. So harvest was sloppier. The varieties tended to lodge more. Uh, so there was a lot of waste grain in the fields and between the productive wetlands and, and the grain fields immediately adjacent, it was, uh, it was a smorgasbord for the ducks. I bet you a lot of our listeners would pay a lot of money to go back in time to that era and be able to witness something like that. It, uh, it's hard to fathom that many birds in, in such a, um, such a small area, small region. Well, yes. And, and some indication of that is it's mentioned in, in, uh, a lot of the rationale for establishing those refuges in the early uh, 20th century was to control hunting, either market hunting or plume hunting or even sport hunting. Uh, there simply wasn't enough closed zone, for example, um, for the birds or the, the hunting was just wide open in terms of market hunting. So a lot of the rationale in the early days was um, excessive hunting. There was just so many birds and it was so attractive to so many hunters. Dave, let's move on here to uh, at least something that I read that I think led to a significant piece of legislation in the 1960s. But as as late as the 1950s, I read something uh, in the information that you and Mark shared prior to this suggesting that uh, there were still uh, desires to homestead additional uh, additional acreage there in in or around Tule Lake or Lower Klamath Lake in the 1950s. And so basically you still have some conflict going on in that era about whether we should be using this for agricultural interest or or uh, wildlife interest. Is that what was happening in the 50s? Does that did that resurface? And that is that eventually what led to some legislation in the 60s? Yeah. Yeah. What, what happened was that uh, since the, the refuge lands were still subject to uh, reclamation being their first the Bureau of Reclamation and, and the agricultural purposes. Um, once the tunnel went through transferring water from Tule Lake to Lower Klamath, the Bureau was, in, was able to shrink the size of, uh, of the, the, the body of water that was Tule Lake into, into a pair of return flow sumps. And, but it opened up 20 plus thousand acres of land uh, that then could be reclaimed for agriculture. And the, the blueprint that the Bureau had been using was that as they uh, reclaim land, they would lease it for farming for a while until they fine-tuned the irrigation infrastructure, and then they would homestead it. And that was the process as the lake shrank down. And so when the tunnel went in between Tule Lake and Lower Klamath, uh, that enabled them to 
uh, go inside, re- establish refuge boundaries to propose homesteading. And of course, it, that sparked quite a controversy because it happened right at a time when we uh, bird populations, waterfowl populations were in that five to seven million uh, uh, bird range and or population range. And so it, it, it created quite a, a lot of consternation among in, uh, burgeoning environmental groups in those days, uh, especially in the early 60s, uh, and, and uh, led to ultimately the passage of the Kekel Act. Yeah, Dave, before we get to the Kekel Act, I wanted to uh, I wanted to touch on the sumps that you that you mentioned, uh, because those are going to be referenced here going forward in some pretty important ways. Uh, tell us a bit more about that. Is it are they exactly as they sound? I mean, when I think of a sump, I think of an area that's a bit lower in elevation and serves as a receiving basin for and holding basin for water. Is that are these sumps a bit lower in elevation than some of the surrounding land? Uh, initially they were, they were the lowest parts of the project. Um, but yeah, as agricultural return flows, in other words, water that flowed off the fields and wasn't used, um, you know, in general, in agriculture, you want to apply more water than is actually the crop will need because you want to keep salts moving away from the the plants and the fields. Otherwise salts start to build up in the soil. So these sumps were, was where those um, agricultural return flows would end up. And they were diked off, levied off, steep-sided, rip-wrapped impoundments. That's what mm. they look like. They still do. Okay. Then take us to the 1960s and tell us about the Kekel Act and the significance of it, what it did. Well, the, the Kekel Act was, uh, again, what the Bureau had proposed to homestead and transfer to private ownership sections of both Thule Lake and Lower Klamath. And um, continue work on, on development of the Klamath project. And the Kekel Act stopped that homesteading process, permanently put uh, those refuge lands, you know, kept them as national wildlife refuges. However, those lands that they had were being talked about for homesteading were supposed to continue as lease lands for farming, lease to local farmers for farming. And so the Kekel Act, um, basically, and the Fish and Wildlife Service um, was in favor of the Kekel Act because they saw that that mixture of leased, leased farmland that was there then um, and the sums that were productive at that time was, was a great recipe for waterfowl. The populations were high. And so they sought to, to essentially freeze freeze those refuges in time. So anyway, yeah, the, the Kekel Act basically stopped um, further development of the project and put the refuges uh, uh, under uh, Fish and Wildlife Service uh, control um, or permanently in governmental ownership, I should say, and stopped the homesteading process. Uh, but it did say that the, the two uh, return flow sumps would stay where they're at. Uh, the lease land farming program would be allowed to continue, quote, consistent with proper waterfowl management. Yeah, Mark, I want to I want to come to you now for some, some some thoughts on this. I've seen some presentations that you've given on this particular topic, and I know the Kekel Act is a pretty significant uh, point in time. And so I mean, what can you add to this from the standpoint of uh, the implications of what the Kekel Act did relative to productivity of those uh, of those wetlands for for waterfowl. Sure. Well, the Kekel, as, as Dave said, Mike, the Kekel Act was well intentioned. Um, it it recognized the and really the continental importance of the refuges, 
And it sought to kind of maintain those. So it, it, one of the things it did, of course, was it stopped homesteading. Um, but it also took special interest in those two sumps on Tule Lake. And it recognized that those were fundamentally important to the large numbers we'd seen during the 1950s. And it, so it wanted to preserve those sumps. And as, da- and as Dave said, once you stabilize water levels in these big wetlands, they become successively less productive over time. So although their intentions were good, they essentially put Tule Lake in a waterfowl time capsule. And to some extent where it remains today, um, those, those, the water levels in those sumps have really been stagnant for a number of years, at least in sump 1A, which is a very large sump. And so essentially over time, um, those sumps became less productive and hence Tule Lake became less attractive to waterfowl. And we would never again see those large numbers of birds we saw in the 1950s, some of which was driven by just the decline in continental pintail populations. But the refuge just became less productive over time, partially as a result of the Kekal Act, which again was well-intentioned, but really didn't understand what water stabilization would do to those sumps. Mark, you mentioned uh, the sump 1A is a very large sump. What are we talking about in terms of, of size? Well, Dave, I think Sump 1A is about 11,000 acres and Sump 1B is around 3,500 acres. Does that sound right? Yeah. Sump 1A might be a little bit smaller than that, but that's close. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, Mark. I, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted some additional insight from you on that because I know what happened there as a result of the Kekal Act and the loss of productivity of those sumps on Tule Lake becomes really important whenever we start to talk about the work that Ducks Unlimited is trying to kind of help, um, help bring about. And so I just want to make sure. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. We were clear on that. 
So, Dave, what was what then happened as we after the Kekul Act, uh, Tule Lake, uh, we talked about here, began this long term decline in productivity as as a result of this uh, well-intentioned, as we've said. What about Lower Klamath? What was its fate following the the Kekul Act? Kind of how did how did it progress in terms of productivity and, and bird use and reliability of water? Well, Lower Klamath um, was much less affected by the Kegel Act than, than Tule Lake was. Uh, much more of the land was essentially left up to the Fish and Wildlife Service to manage as they saw fit, provided they could get the water. And so, you know, it was able to, um, you know, essentially uh, use more modern techniques for wetland management and uh, use the best science available and, and uh, you know, a better variety of wetlands. And, uh, over time, consider the needs of other wetland wildlife species, and, you know, better integration, maybe of farming within your, your wetlands. And, um, so anyway, it, it maintained its uh, productivity and use fairly well. And it, it, it was, in, you know, it's interesting. It, it's one of the first things I saw when I got to Lower Klamath was that the look of or the viewing a graph of waterfowl use on Tule Lake over time versus Lower Klamath. It's like, Wow. This is amazing, uh, you know, what has happened to Tule Lake. And, uh, you know, we started attempting to do whatever we could to try to enhance the wetland productivity there. Uh, along Dex Unlimited helped us with a really big project uh, on, the, on Sump 1B, the lower sump that was very successful. Um, but, yeah, anyway, at lower, we were just able to manage Lower Klamath. On Tule Lake, your ability to manage is much less. Because number one, all the project facilities and water come from the Bureau of Reclamation. The facilities on the refuge itself are operated under contract by the Tule Lake Irrigation District. And then the refuge kind of manages the hunting program and some um, lure crop programs, I'll call them, um, to try to alleviate depredation on on the agricultural lands. Mike, you know, you think about how much we've learned about managing wetlands since the 1960s and how much we've learned about producing food on wetlands for ducks since the 1960s, really over the last 50 or 60 years. Um, They were able to put that knowledge into play on Lower Klamath. Um, Refuge staff were much less opportunity to do that on Tule Lake because of the Kekalak and what it determined the sumps needed to be or needed to look like. So really, really very much a tale of two cities when it came to the two refuges in terms of, of wetland management. I th- is that a fair, is that a fair statement, Dave? Yeah, it is. Um, what I noticed during my tenure there is if you could do some wetland management on Tule Lake, the soils are so much better on the Tule Lake side that the wetland response is faster. And, and oftentimes the bird uses and, and the response of seasonal marsh plants, for example, sago pondweed, all those things. It is really much greater over on lower climate, but you get the opportunity to, to play with marsh management on Tule Lake a lot less than you do on lower climate. Mike, you mentioned, or Dave might've mentioned sump 1B, the smaller sump. And the fact that in the early 2000s, I think Dave, maybe 2002, um, that sump was drained and the wetland response was phenomenal. In fact, uh, the first time I met Dave um, almost 20 years ago, and I had just arrived in the West, um, and my boss sent me to the Klamath Basin, um, and the first time, which is where I met Dave, and Dave, as I recall, we walked around Sump 1B, uh, Sump, yeah, Sump 1B, I guess, 
And uh, it was a huge uh, moist soil unit, really. There was just tremendous food production. Um, so certainly, given the ability, um, that sump could certainly produce a lot of food. Yeah, it went, you know, when, when we first started that project, we were, worked with the Irrigation District and the Bureau uh, and Ducks Unlimited. They were instrumental in, in, in helping us with that project. Um, uh, you know, it was a wide open sheet of water. It hadn't been uncovered in, I forget, 60 years, I think. Um, so... Uh, it, it, very little wildlife use and, and right. You know, the first year's response was kind of weak because there's no seed bank there. Um, cause it's been underwater for 60 years and, but there's enough plants to set seed for the following year by year two. It was smart weed over your head. It was, it was phenomenal. And then the emergence started really coming on in year three and year four. And now it's, geez, it's full of colonial water birds and molting waterfowl and waterfowl broods. And it's a very productive place. And that was in the early 2000s. And so we, we kind of skipped a few decades there. I want to go back a bit. We're going to come back to that. It was a pretty exciting part of this story and has some implications for some of the other proposed and ongoing work. But uh, so after the after the Kiekel Act, we have these um, different trajectories, tale of two cities, as Mark described it. And so Lower Klamath was rocking along, doing well, getting water from Upper Klamath, uh, from, from Upper Klamath Lake, as I, as I think I recall correctly for its irrigation purposes. But then, then the story kind of takes a turn, I believe in the, in the 1990s. So Dave, tell us, yeah, take us through that interesting decade. What happened in the nineties that began to change the story? Um, not necessarily for the good from a waterfowl perspective. No oh boy. It, it seemed like all the cards were against us, so to speak. But, you know, prior to the 90s, the biggest problem we had on Lower Klamath was too much water. We couldn't get rid of it. Uh, and and the, the, the Klamath project was an abundant supplier of return flows from Thule Lake pumped through the hill to Lower Klamath. And sometimes that got in the way of us uh, doing various marsh manage, management activities because uh, you're, you're to drain wetlands for seasonal marsh purposes or other management purposes, uh, you need a canal, and oftentimes the canal is full of water because you're getting it delivered to you at the same time. So anyway, that that's a side story. But uh, uh, there there was an abundance of return flows, and a lot of that was due to power rates in the project were really cheap, and there was no competing demands for water. So there was really was not a a real incentive for high degrees of water conservation. So there was abundant water. But we get to the early 1990s, uh, well, late, late, what was it, 1988, I believe, the uh, Lost River and Short Nose Sucker were uh, listed as endangered in Upper Klamath Lake. Uh, then we get to the early 90s and we get some drought years. And the Bureau has to start preparing uh, biological opinions under the Endangered Species Act for managing the suckers in Upper Klamath Lake. This is where the two endangered fish live. Um, and, and it's also the main source of water for the Klamath Project and the lower refuges, Tule Lake and Lower Klamath. So um, at first, the, the biological opinion in, in, uh, in, it was in 1992, and it was uh, the Bureau could go to a fairly low lake level on, on the storage reservoir of Upper Klamath Lake. And they could, in two years out of 10, there was some flexibility. They could even go below that. Well, as we went further into the 90s, the minimum lake elevations to protect the suckers got more and more strict and they got higher. 
and uh, leading. And then in the late uh, 1990s, we list the Coho Salmon in the Klamath River, which is the downstream of Upper Klamath Lake. So you have two almost competing needs of endangered species uh, in the river for the Coho Salmon and the lake for um, for the suckers. So what used to be an ag first and then the refuges received their return flows from agriculture turned into endangered fish in the lake, endangered fish in the river. And then you also had an increase, uh, increased uh, acknowledgement of the rights of uh, Native Americans for subsistence, of fishery subsistence in particular. Dave, I think to me that, that struck me as an important part of this, this story to make sure we, we mentioned the, you know, the Native American interest in, in both, and well, I guess all three of these uh, fish species, uh, I mean, they're protected under the Endangered Species Act just for, for that purpose uh, alone, became listed under the ESA. But then there, as you mentioned, there are also some pretty strong uh, Native American cultural interest in those fish as well, right? Right. The Klamath tribes on Upper Klamath Lake have subsistence rights to those suckers that are endangered. And the, uh, the Yurok and Karuk tribes on the lower river have, you know, have, have subsistence rights to the Salmonids in the Klamath River. So, um, yeah, it was another level. So uh, irrigated ag uh, <clears throat> and the refuges being one and two, it's shifted to uh, three and four. And so then all of a sudden there's a real, the Klamath project has to start becoming a lot more efficient with their water use. Um, and so the return flows start to dry up, which the refuge lives on. And um, so anyway, it started tightening, tightening up for the refuge. And then to add another uh, wrinkle to the story, uh, the project had been operating on a, on a 50 year old power rate uh, through Pacific core that was negotiated when Link River Dam went in and that, that power rate for the project irrigators expired uh, I think it was in the early 2000s somewhere. And so their power rates shot through the ceiling. Um, and so there was another incentive to be much more efficient with water use. You couldn't afford to pump it like you used to. You couldn't afford to pump it from Thule Lake over to Lower Klamath, for example. So uh, it was it was a perfect storm. What, where we went from too much water in the 80s, how do we get rid of all this stuff, to not getting any um it it, it uh, really was tough and so that's a reflection as you mentioned of changing water priorities and then when you layer on t- when you layer on to that uh, you, you might say an environmental almost disaster uh, that occurred in the early 2000s, things uh, became more serious even still. So uh, 2001, I believe, was the date of another significant event in terms of a, a very seared, severe drought that brought additional attention to some of the water woes in that region. Is that right? Yeah, that that's correct. You know, and, and that was a, a mathematical certainty that that was going to happen sooner or later. And that, you know, there was a biological opinion to mandate certain levels in Upper Klamath Lake to protect the suckers. There was mandated river flows in the Klamath to protect the salmon. And sooner or later, you know, um, there isn't going to be enough water to go around. And and 2001 was a very, very dry year. And uh, the Bureau came out in the spring and said that the project's uh, not going to be able to operate this year. 
Mark, I know I've heard you tell this story about uh, some fairly notable, noteworthy protests that occurred in 2001. Tell us uh, a little bit about those. Well, actually, Mike, Dave would be much more familiar with those than me because he lived right there in Klamath Falls and would have seen that all up close. Um, and I'll, I'll add a call, you know, offer a couple observations, but essentially, um, as Dave said, there was no, um, there was no water for Dave, I suppose at that time would have been about 230,000 acres of, of farmland, right. That would have required that irrigation water. And, um, there wasn't going to be any water for, so obviously Mike, there was a lot of, um, uh, the local agricultural community was very um, upset. Um, they, to my knowledge, they actually, Dave, did they, they, they chain the canal or they chain the, they chain the, uh, the valve that essentially released water into the drainage canal, correct? Uh, they did. I, I think originally, as I remember, um, some of the irrigators did go and, and open the gates. Right. Open. Yeah. Open, open the irrigation gates, which had been locked shut to my understanding. Right. And then the, uh, uh, the Bureau basically had to post, uh, I believe federal agents there to keep those gates closed. And, and then there was pretty much a, a protest all summer there at the gates. It, it certainly made the national news. Mike, it actually only really slipped from the national news um, when 9-11 occurred, which, of course, you know, um, took over coverage of everything. But, yeah, it was uh, a lot of national attention there um, in 2001 when that happened. Yeah, I, I will say I'll hand it to the irrigators. They were um, they worked overtime to, to try to get their message across in a peaceful way. Um, and, and that's important because you see so many protests nowadays that turn otherwise. And um, they were. They were successful in, in making sure that their message was about ESA and agricultural water. Right. I think they formed, Dave, what was it? The Bucket Brigade they formed and um, which was, uh, I believe they, they um, well, you can, you can explain it better than I can, but it was kind of representation for, they filled 50 buckets full of water. Each bucket, I think, represented one state in the union. I, I think so. They, they basically transported water by a, a chain of people. Uh, from the Klamath River over to the A Canal, the main irrigation canal for the project, um, kind of as a symbolic um, parade and gesture. And yeah, there, there, uh, there might have been the 50 buckets you're talking about. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think I think I, I think I recall that. It's been a long time, but uh, I remember I do remember visiting the basin um, during that summer when all that was going on. And this is a good point and probably a good time to say this. I, I kind of intended to do this early on, but Mark, I know I've seen you uh, use this language uh, and I think maybe it might even be in a forthcoming article of yours in the Ducks Unlimited magazine about this particular topic. And that's one of the reasons that we wanted to have this, uh, this particular series of episodes to add a bit more detail to this story. But we're, we're certainly, we certainly want to avoid sending the message that there are any bad actors here. That's not, that's not at all what we're saying. Sometimes things, uh, things happen, things develop through time. And, uh, you know, you left with a series of circumstances that, that, uh, that just don't work out for all the interests that are, uh, that are involved there. So, uh, certainly we, we don't, I think we've avoided trying to cast anyone, paint anyone as a bad actor here. And that certainly, we certainly don't want to do that. We're just trying to describe the situation and all the different represent all the different interests that are at play. And of course we come at this from an angle of, of, uh, an interest in waterfowl, waterfowl habitat conservation and, 
We're trying to figure out a way to make that happen amidst all the other competing interests. Is that that kind of fair to way to characterize it, Mark? Yeah, there, you know, Mike. Even though the story is a hundred years old now, there are no villains in this story. Um, you know, in the end, it's just not enough water to go around in an arid landscape, um, especially now that um, we have you know three species of fish that have found their way onto the endangered species list. But there are no villains here. Um, it's simply too little water in an arid landscape at this point in time. Yeah, it it is. Uh, it, it's like well, the project was set up for the values in 1905 that were important to people. And that was making use of lands that were, were deemed um, of, of low value, i.e. wetlands, and putting them to a higher value. And then you take that same infrastructure and those same laws and the same operating system you transported forward in time to the 21st century and uh, people start scratching their heads. Well, we are sort of on the time scale here up to the early 2000s. And I know one of the other significant milestones occurs in 2020. Actually, I guess it would have started prior to 2020, but we certainly want to spend some time on that. And and I think we have enough material here to uh, to justify a third episode. I believe I started thinking that started out this the first episode saying we're going to have a couple of uh, two episodes but as sometimes occurs the story is a bit more interesting and challenging and complex that requires more time so with that we're going to wrap up this episode here uh dave and mark so thank you guys again for joining us and we're gonna we're gonna resume again with episode three so thanks guys thanks mike thank you appreciate the invite we again extend special thanks to our guests on this episode, Dr. Dave Mauser and Dr. Mark Petrie, two guys that have spent a lot of time in the West and that know the issues around the Klamath Basin very, very well. And we appreciate them sharing this information with us. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, our very own digital warrior for all the great work that he does editing these podcasts. And of course, to you, the listener, we thank you for your spending your time with us. And we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com.
Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. The next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit campuswaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation, united by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside.